Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is uh, September 3rd, 2011, and um, I'm glad to be on the show today. (laughs) Anyway... We have some more hurricane development that I'd like to quickly talk about. Uh, We have uh, Tropical Storm Lee approaching the Gulf. Actually, she's already in the Gulf of Mexico, but uh, it's going to be going to, uh, from what I understand, Louisiana, New Orleans. It's going to cause tremendous uh, flooding, 20 inches flooding, of rain, which will cause flooding. So uh, I know the governor of uh, Tennessee has already declared a state of emergency. And uh, for those uh, in New Orleans, you need to pray for them, make sure that nothing like Katrina happens again. But uh, we're in the end times, and we collectively as a nation have not really shown God that we want to obey him collectively. So uh, as I explained in the program last week, uh, he does allow these things to occur uh, to teach us a lesson collectively. And I wanted to go to certain scriptures that I didn't get a chance to go to uh, in reference to hurricanes. Um, the, the first one I wanted to, to turn to here is uh, Job. Actually, the one I didn't, uh, the two that I didn't quote from last week, uh, Job chapter 37. Verses 11 to 13. Uh, Michelle Balkman had, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, she stated that uh, it was a judgment from God when you had the earthquake and and, uh, Hurricane Irene, and she was right, but of course she said it was a joke because she she wants to get as many votes as she can, of course, to become president, so she's going to, that's the way most politicians are. They say what you want to hear instead of, speaking the truth and representing the truth. That's why I'm really not attracted to uh, politics. Uh, politics is phoniness, and very seldom do you get a, a, someone who is real, really serious about doing the right thing. And, you know, that's what this Bible study is about, justice and, and righteousness, uh, just doing the right thing. And, you know, God has prophesied that that's really missing today in our country. Uh, people 
especially politicians, uh, they don't want to do the right thing in, in a lot of cases. Uh, they just want to do or say what they need to to get enough votes for themselves. See, and and that's again, that's that's not what um, God wants us to do. I'm trying to use the the Common English Bible here. Sometimes when I put it in the lookup, it doesn't. Scriptures don't come up like they should. Anyway, all right, I'm using the Common English Bible on the internet here, and if you want to follow along, it's uh, commonenglishbible.com, www.commonenglishbible.com. In Job 37 verse 11, we are uh, understanding why God has created hurricanes and how He uses uh, hurricanes. Uh, Job 37 verse 11. He also fills clouds with moisture. His lightning scatters clouds. He overturns the circling clouds. By his guidance, they do their work, doing everything he commands over the entire earth. So this should tell you that God is in control of hurricanes and other weather disturbances. And then verse 13 in the Common English Bible is the key verse I want to target here. It says, weather for punishment. For for his world, and this is his world, even though he's allowed the devil to rule it, or for kindness. God makes it all happen. So the hurricane can be used. Uh, let me see what the English Standard Version, let's see how they translate this here. But the point is that the hurricane that God has created can be used for punishment or for kindness. And I know the people in Texas were praying that the, because unfortunately they're going. They're going. I actually spoke to a, a woman yesterday on the phone, and she told me she she was in Texas. She called me about a possible uh, sales opportunity uh, with her company, and she told me that uh, they are going through the worst drought that they ever went through in Texas. So of course they're they're hoping and praying that God sends some of that tropical storm leave which could by the way become a hurricane from what i read today uh and we should be praying that god has mercy because texas is really getting baked right now like a bacon and and uh, we need to, to pray that uh god extends his mercy and compassion to the texians and provide them with um, water and rain because if, if they don't get rain uh, they're not going to be able to economically thrive uh, in that state, and and uh, it's going to hurt us too. I think they do provide uh, quite a few vital crops for all of us too. So um, we need to, to pray for them. But um, yeah, in verse thirteen, the English Standard Version says, "Whether for correction for his land or for love, he causes it to happen." Of course, his land is the entire world, right? So, and I think the um, the uh, New American Standard Bible Version has a better translation of this. Or Let me just take a look at this here. 37. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, this is a good translation. Uh, Job 37, verse 12, it changes direction, turning around by his guidance. You know, he's talking about the hurricane or tornado. Um, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. This is in the New American Standard Bible Version. Uh, verse 13, whether for correction or for his world, 
or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. And let me see, I think in another version here, contemporary English Bible version. This is a very good translation here. Uh, Joel 37, verse 12 in the contemporary English uh, Bible version. It says, traveling across the sky to release their cargo, sometimes as punishment for sin, sometimes as kindness. So that that should explain to you his... Uh, purpose for hurricanes. Uh, they can cause cursings or punishments or blessings. Uh, Job 36, verses 29 to 32. Let me see. Let me look at this up in the comments. English Bible version. Job 36, verse 29. Job 36, verse 29. All right. Um, Even if one perceives a spreading cloud and the thunder of his pavilion, describing a hurricane again, and look how he spreads lightning across it and covers the seabed, for by water he judges peoples and gives food in abundance. He conceals lightning in his palms and orders it to its target. His thunder announces that even cattle proclaim is rising, a hurricane is a storm. And that's what it's describing here, uh, the um, how he controls the weather and he does what he needs to do to get his point across. And many people, of course, uh, don't understand that, but uh, that is the truth about how he uses uh, hurricanes in the English Standard Bible version. How does it read here? It says, uh, "Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. By this he judges peoples, and he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashing declares its presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. So, again, he uses this to get your attention and our attention." That's very important to understand that. All right, so I hope, uh, you know, with with the Bible study last week and today, you understand that God is in control of weather disturbances, and he uses it either to punish us, and right now it's definitely for punishing, uh, or for blessing. That's that's the purpose of hurricanes and and, hurricanes. uh, other weather disturbances. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, especially recently, he's been using them for punishment because of our embracement of homosexuality. Um, I talked about this before in, in several programs, but I don't know if you're aware of this, but two or three months ago, I think, uh, the United Nations, which is located in New York, announced to the entire world that uh, we should be tolerant of uh, gays and lesbians and accept them in the world community and provide them with uh, equal rights. Uh, The following week after that, the um, 
I think the governor of New York um, to his office uh, had passed a law there saying that um, same-sex marriages is allowable in the state. 30 days from that proclamation, the mayor of New York, Mr. Bloomberg, had married two males, and me and my son saw it on CNN. So when you understand Luke chapter 17, when Yeshua stated that as in the days of Noah and Lot, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, and we know what happened uh, in the days of Lot, uh, God wanted to come down with the two angels to, to verify what was going on. He wanted to see for himself because what he was planning was total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is merciful. He wants to, you know, let me just see it for myself <laughs> before he does something that horrible. Uh, and he did see it for himself, all right. And uh, the two angels, uh, they were there. And, of course, they must have looked like males. Uh, because there were other males desiring to have sex with them. That's in Genesis chapter 19. People may want to um, do all kind, do all kinds of eisegesis, uh, which is putting your own thoughts in the scriptures to try to say what is uh, obviously indicating that they they wanted to have sex with men. But the, the truth is there if you want to see it. And so that was the last straw, and God just destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So if Yeshua, or Jesus, as his Hebrew name, Yeshua, is comparing that social situation to the end times, then that means that, and he, you know, God calls the world Sodom and Gomorrah, basically, when you understand what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah is, as revealed in Ezekiel chapter 16. I went over that last week, so if you don't know what the sins of Sodom are, find out about it by listening to my program last week. I explain it in detail. But anyway, uh, when society gets to the point where all the sins of Sodom leads to that, and that's what it does, it leads to degeneration of the mind and how you act, and you get to the point where you will commit abominable acts like uh, desiring to have sex with your own sex, um, or gender, rather. And when God sees that, that's the last straw. And we're getting to that point right now. That's the gauge that you need to be looking for. God looks at social behavior. He doesn't look at dates. He looks at social behavior, how people are acting. And based on how people are acting, he acts. That's how you're able to tell uh, whether you're in the end times or not, by people's behavior, how they act. Uh, to prove that, let's turn to Second, uh, second um, Timothy. I think it's Second Timothy. Chapter 3. Yeah. And this is in the common English Bible version. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Understand that the last days will be dangerous times. Now, what God is describing here through uh, the um, missionary or apostle Paul, or Shaul in Hebrew, he's explaining the social conditions of the world. In the, in the end times. It says, people will be selfish and love money. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the kind of society we live in today. People are very selfish, and they love money. They don't love hardly themselves or anyone else. It, to, it's being selfish is not loving yourself. Being selfish is, is not a uh, sentiment or feeling that God wants us to have. 
just to be concerned about ourselves. That's not love to him. All right. People will be selfish and love money. That's the first thing that came out of Shaul's mouth under the inspiration of God. So that highlights the social conditions of society today, especially in the United States. They will be, and see, this is this is kind of ironic that Labor Day, I, I studied what Labor Day was all about, and, and I didn't know what Labor Day was all about. I just, something got, I guess God just, he just told me to, to go and find out what Labor Day is about. So that's what I did. <laughs> and it involved, uh, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, it involved the, palm, the Pullman strike, the Pullman strike. And let me just read this to you. It says in Wikipedia, you can just look up um, Pullman strike. It says, perhaps the most violent and most famous railroad-related strike, the Pullman strike, was a nationwide conflict between labor unions and railroads that occurred in the United States in 1894 says the conflict began in the town of Pullman, Illinois, uh, in my uh, used-to-be home state, on May 11th when approximately 3,000 employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company began a wildcat strike in response to recent reductions in wages. Reduction in wages, bringing traffic west of Chicago to a halt. All right, so the reason why I'm bringing this up, because based on the Labor Day, uh, let me go down here. It says right here in the same article, Labor Day became a federal holiday in 1894 after the strike when President Grover Cleveland and Congress made appeasement of organized labor a top priority. Legislation for the holiday was pushed through Congress six days after the strike ended. And Samuel Gompers, head of the American Federation of Labor, which has sided with the government in its effort to end the strike by the American Railway Union, spoke out in favor of the holiday. So Labor Day is supposed to be a holiday that recognizes the unjust lowering of wages for these workers, and that's the reason why they strike, because they lowered their wages. You're not supposed to do that. And I don't think people really, I didn't. I didn't understand. Now I do. And and uh, Labor Day should be a day where we make an effort in this country not to oppress people. That's what it's all about. And are we doing that in this country? No. So it doesn't surprise me that God is bringing all kinds of curses weather-wise to this country at this particular period of time. So uh, I don't know if any of you really pay attention to the news, but I suggest you do. Uh, the recent report from the United States Department of Labor, not one job was created in August. Not one. Not one. For my poor black fellow blacks, because I'm black myself, okay, uh, the unemployment rate for blacks is at its worst it has ever been in 27 years. It's at 17%. We are living in dangerous times for folks, just like this prophecy that I'm reading um, that God inspired through the Apostle Paul has stated, uh, we, we've got to, to wake up and we have to understand the seriousness of the times that we're living in today. And we're going to have to do extraordinary things. Uh, many of us have the skills to start our own business. You need to do that instead of waiting for a company to hire you. You're going to have to do your own thing. 
if you have money saved up where you can do that, fine. If not, then get you a little part-time job if you can. <laughs> and, and then do your own thing on the side. You, you've got to do that now. You can't depend. Because what did, what did Shaul say here in verse 2? People will be selfish and love money. That's the society that we live in today. Many of these big multinational corporations, they outsource. Outsourcing means they, they shift jobs overseas because they can hire employees that they can pay them a dollar an hour to do work. And they can make more money. So why should they hire us, right? But that's what Labor Day is supposed to be all about, right? You shouldn't be reducing people's wages and so forth. But we don't, as a nation, we don't care about Labor Day. All we care about is we got a day off. We don't focus on what the day represents. Oppression. A salary oppression. Wage oppression. Anyway. Let's see what else Shaul says here. They will be the kind of people who brag and who are proud. And we do that in this country. It's outlining the, really the sins of Sodom here in this whole thing, it looks like. They will slander others, and they will be disobedient to their parents. Slandering means you lie on people and say things that aren't true about them. That's the characteristics of our country today. Uh, we have gossip magazines. Uh, gossip, that's what that is. You're slandering people. That's not right. And they will be disobedient to their parents. Oh, there's a lot of children today, teenagers especially, that are really rebellious to their parents. Don't want to be told what to do. Now, I understand their parents are saying something stupid and telling them to do something stupid. You're not required to obey your parents. But if your parents tell you a certain things to be in the bed at a certain time or so forth or be at home at a certain time, you don't obey them, that's, that ain't, that's not right. That's not right. Now, he also says they will be ungrateful, unholy. That that means that you're not appreciative of what you have. You take it for granted. Unholy means you're not set apart. You're not doing what you need to do to obey God. That's, that's unholy. Unloving, contrary, and critical. These people just criticize that this guy's something to say about somebody all the time. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You just did that, 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 that. Constantly, over and over and over and over again. They will be without self-control. These are people that can't control how much they're eating. I'm just giving examples. Uh, they they can't seem to, uh, when it comes to entertainment, limit that, that amount. You know, entertainment's important. Don't get me wrong. God entertains himself. I think we entertain him. How <laughs> we act? I mean, he laughs how we act. So he he likes to be entertained, but but we got to control that. Whatever whatever our vices are, vice is something that causes us to sin. We have to control that. You can't let the temptation to sin cause you to sin. Christ was tempted in all points, but yet he didn't sin. You can't let the wicked thought get in your mind and cause it to do what the wicked thought wants you to do. We gotta have self control. So he says they will be without self control and brutal and they won't love what is good. And that's true because most righteous people are hated by other people. They despise somebody who's trying to be right. I'm gonna get into that today, what a righteous person is. Verse four they will be people who are disloyal, reckless, and conceited. 
They will love pleasure. Love pleasure, which is the summation of the sins of Sodom, instead of loving God. Verse 5. They will look like they are religious. In other words, they're playing religion. But they deny God's power. What's God's power? The, the, the Holy Spirit. So when you're you're faking religion, you are denying the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5 verse 32 says, He only gives the power of the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. If you don't obey Him, you're not going to receive the power to continue to obey. And, of course, He states here, avoid people like this. All right, so... When we get somebody acting like that, you're not doing yourself a favor or the other individual by being around this person. Okay, now, you know, in some cases you may be married to an individual like that. Whatever, what you have to do is do the best you can to not get angry and upset at them. I know that's very difficult, but it can be done. Anything can be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, the point of the matter is this is the kind of society that we live in today. A very wicked society. And you have to be aware of this. You can't put your head in the sand and say, oh, everything's okay, we're at peace. Peace means all your needs are taken. Every person's needs throughout the world is taken care of. Now, can you honestly say that? That no one is worrying about their lives right now. That everything is taken care of. Everyone has enough food and clothes and shelter. Everyone knows the true God. They understand God. Can you actually say that we have that kind of peace worldwide. No. But you get some people saying that we have peace. We don't have peace. Peace is not just uh, not having a major war in your neighborhood. Peace is having everything, all your needs taken care of. That is true peace. That's not going to happen, folks, until the Messiah comes. So anyway, where am I at? talking about hurricanes, and I just wanted to, to point that out. And this is something else I need to point out because this is very important. Many people are focusing on, and my wife brought this out, and that's why I'm talking about it, and she was right about this. She mentioned this many times about throwing money in the streets, so I just thought I'd look up scriptures. Silver and gold, folks, is not our haven. It's not, it's not something that is going to save us. And let me explain to you why through the prophecies of the Bible here. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. Right now, I signed up to a, a board on Facebook. And, it's, you know, I understand there's nothing wrong with talking about how to, to owe no man anything, okay? Uh, and that's the intent. We, we should get out of debt if we can. But most people are in debt, not because they want to be. It's because of the society that we live in. Most people can't afford a $100,000 home. Most people can't afford a decent car. And most people, unfortunately, can't afford a college education or any education for that matter. So they have to get themselves in temporary debt. But those three debts that I mentioned are necessary. Okay? They're smart debts. Um especially the house and the education part of it. Uh, a car, I would recommend, if you can, save up enough money to buy one. But I know in many cases uh, you have to, to finance a car. But when you finance a car, it shouldn't be the most expensive. It, it should be something that 
maybe a $5,000 car, $7,000 car where you can get around. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to, to buy the luxury cars and everything else unless, of course, you can afford it. But the house is a smart investment because when you make the, the mortgage payment, you, you get that much closer to owning the home. Your education, and if you're, you're choosing the right subject area, uh, or if you want to be a college professor, uh, you can choose any area and you can teach it and, and make a decent amount of money. But the point of the matter is uh, with the college education, if you're investing in that, that, that is a good investment. The, the Bible says get wisdom, get knowledge. That's the principal thing. So that's the most important thing. And it's talking about all kinds of knowledge, not just biblical knowledge, but, but physical knowledge as well. So those three areas are necessary to get in the debt. Uh, the Bible even talks about loaning people money. All right, so debt is not getting a debt is not a sin. What that scripture is indicating is unnecessary debt. You know, a debt that's a consumer upon your own lust. That's the kind of debt that we need to eliminate. And we should try to owe no man anything. We should not be in debt if we don't have to be. If it's not a requirement, things happen. I broke my wrist. I'm eighteen, two thousand dollars in debt right now. You know, God understands that, and that's not debt that I wanted to get in. I had to to use some credit cards too. I couldn't work for a month. You know, that that's those are one of those things of time and chance. But it wasn't intentional debt. I, you know, I didn't get into debt because I wanted to go buy my favorite shoe or a favorite suit. You know, sometimes debts are necessary, but as long as you pay them off, God doesn't hold that against you. So anyway, where am I at here? Oh, okay, we're getting to Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 19. Looks like I'm going to probably sum up the Torah readings again today. This is so much to talk about and so little time to do it in, unfortunately. So but I try to do the best I can. Ezekiel 7, verse 19. Now, he's talking about the context of this. Yes, uh, prophecy. Uh, Ezekiel 7, verse 1. The Lord's word came to me, you human one. This is what the Lord God proclaimed to the land of Israel. And he's talking specifically about the land of Israel. But remember, uh the little nation of Israel is, is is really linked with the United States. If it wasn't for the United States, the nation of Israel would not exist. So, and then if you understand who Israel is, it's not just the little uh, nation of Israel in the Middle East. It's also uh, today uh, the United States, Canada, uh, New Zealand, um, Australia, South Africa, the countries in Northwestern Europe, Canada, and of course anyone that. Uh, attaches themselves by believing in the Jewish Messiah, which is uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, that is the commonwealth of Israel, according to Ephesians chapter 2. They're, they're grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. So that's Israel. So whenever you see Israel, think that way. Unless the scripture is specifically talking about the land of Israel. But even in that case, You've got to think about the other tribes, because all of Israel are 12 tribes. That's in Genesis chapter 49. Anyway, he says, an end. The end has come to the four corners of the earth. So that tells you everywhere. That's talking about the whole world here. 
even now the end has come upon you. And this end is happening, folks. The the end is coming. All right, so that's I just want you to understand the context of this. And when you go down to, because you have to look above and below, and be careful not to take a scripture out of context. Um, Ezekiel 7, verse 19, it says, They will hurl their silver into the street, and their gold will seem unclean. Their silver and gold won't deliver them on the day of the Lord's anger. They won't satisfy, and this is the reason why, and I've told my wife this, and look look and behold, it's in the Bible. They won't satisfy their appetites or fill their bellies. How can you eat gold or silver? Can you have a nice meal with uh, silver and ketchup on it? No. I mean, you can't eat silver and gold. And God is saying the same thing here in a better way than I ever could. They they will hurl their silver into the street, and their gold will seem unclean. Their silver and their gold won't deliver them on the day of the Lord's anger. They won't satisfy their appetites or fill their bellies. Their guilt will bring them down. All right, so I understand people are trying to say silver and gold, but you heard from the Word of God through the prophet Ezekiel, which was a major prophet, by the way. That that's not going to save you. As I've told my wife, and I'm telling you, if you listen, you need to store food. Use your money to buy food. That's what me and my wife are doing. We're storing up food. That's what we need, you need to focus on. Because what does God say? They're going to be tossing that money in the streets. <laughs> I guarantee you the food won't be tossed in the streets for those who have it. So that's what you need to be storing. Food. Let's turn to another scripture. The focus is wrong. Because another thing you need to understand, when we're in this devastated financial state, there's not going to be any grocery stores open. <laughs> you know, there, there's a video by the National uh, Inflation Association that you, you should go to that, Google that, go to that website. It has a video of a scenario that's going to probably happen almost exactly the way they have it, where the stock market crashes, and what do people do? Are they are they buying silver and gold at that time? They're going to the grocery store <laughs> to get food because they know the grocery stores are going to close because things are too expensive for them to, to operate their business. But you don't want to wait until that happens. You need to start buying emergency food now. That's what you need to start doing. Go to www.beprepared.com. God has made it simple for you. Beprepared.com. And get what you need to survive. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 18. Continuing in the um, Common English Bible Version. It says, Moreover, there's silver, and this is the context of the tribulation again, uh, the day of the Lord. Yep. You look above, that's what it's talking about. And in verse 17 he says, I will make humanity suffer. (laughs) Plain statement there. I will make humanity suffer. They will walk like the blind because, and why? Why is God doing this? Because they sinned against the Lord. 
Their blood will be poured out like dust, and their intestines like manure. That's what he says. Now, in that context, in verse 18, moreover, their silver and their gold won't be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's fury. His jealousy will devour the entire land with fire. He will make an end, a truly horrible one, for all the inhabitants of the land. So, again, folks, you know, it's great that you you want to save your silver and gold, and, and that's fine and dandy. But unless you don't, unless you uh, convert that over to food, it's not going to do you any good in the end. Remember that. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Proverbs 11, verse 4. Proverbs 11, verse 4. It says, riches don't help in the day of wrath. So the Bill Gates and the Warren Buffett's of the world, your riches are not going to help you in the day of God's wrath. But righteousness, which is the context and subject of this Bible study, rescues from death. So obeying God is going to rescue you in the end. It's not going to be riches and money and gold and silver. Obeying God will. That's what it's going to take for you to be rescued from death. And that's the main goal here when we're talking about pure religion. The focus of it is to be rescued from death, from eternal death, pure religion. And through righteousness, well, righteousness is doing right. Pure religion, as as defined in James 1 verse 27, is visiting the widows and the fatherless, and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. That's that's righteousness. Doing the right thing. That's what's going to save you. In the end. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 7. You know, remember now, Yeshua talked about the days that we're living in now, the 21st century. And he compared it to the days of Noah. And Lot, but we're going to focus on the days of Noah. Now, what did Noah do? What did what did Noah do? Let's let's turn to Hebrews eleven verse seven. This is called the, the trust chapter or the faith chapter. It says by faith or trust, Noah responded with godly fear. Fear is hating evil. Proverbs eight verse thirteen: a fear of God. When he was warned about events he hadn't seen yet. That's what prophecy is. It warns you of events that you have not seen yet or will be seeing soon. He built an ark to deliver his household, his family. With his trust, he criticized the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from faith. So, was Noah rich? I don't know. But did I'm sure he didn't save any silver and gold. Uh, it didn't appear that he did. Uh, he got two of each animal and insect. And I'm sure he stored some food in his ark to survive. We should follow this example since Yeshua stated that 
what? He stated that as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So it's not a surprise to me that he influenced Shaul, who wrote the book of Hebrews, despite what people think. Uh, inspired him to put that in there. That we need to prepare. And the best way we can prepare is do what Noah did. Obey God and build your own little, quote, ark within your home. Or go to a safe location. Go to the wilderness um, and prepare there. Stock, stock up on food and learn how to survive without electricity. Noah didn't have electricity back then. So that, as far as I know, he didn't. <laughs> That's another Bible study in itself to see how advanced they were. But let's put it this way. The ark didn't have any electricity. If it was electricity, they had generators. Okay? So that's still... I have to stop myself there because uh, Noah, uh, there's indication that Noah's civilization may have been just as advanced as ours, if not more. So that's another Bible study in itself. But anyway, so I just wanted to, to focus on the silver and the gold and, and, and to let you know that that's not really um, important in God's eyes here. Okay. All right, so where are we at now and how much time do we have left? Uh, we have 48 minutes. All right, so we're going to get into the importance of justice and righteousness. And what I'm going to do is uh, summarize um, the Torah readings here. And just make sure that we understand what we need to, to learn from it. Uh, the first Torah reading summation is uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, to chapter 21, verse 9. Uh, when you have some time, I suggest you read that section. Um, but I'm just going to use the summary that Chabad has uh, conveniently uh, provided for me and for others. Uh, it says, Moses instructs the people of Israel to appoint judges and, and law enforcement officers in every city. Justice, justice shall you pursue which uh, means zadok, zadok in Hebrew, which means doing the right thing. He commands them, and you must administer it without corruption or favoritism. And unfortunately today uh, in this country, uh, we don't have that too often where uh, justice is executed without corruption or favoritism. It says crimes must be meticulously investigated and evidence thoroughly examined. A minimum of two credible witnesses is required for conviction and punishment. In every generation, says Moses, there will be those entrusted with the task of interpreting and applying the laws of the Torah. According to the law that they teach you and the judgment they will instruct you, you shall do, you shall not turn away from the thing that they say to you to the right or to the left, assuming, of course, you're judging correctly. All right. Uh, Shoftim also includes the prohibitions against idolatry and sorcery, laws governing the appointment and behavior of a king, and guidelines for the creation of cities of refuge for the inadvertent murder. This is somebody who murdered someone and didn't mean to do it. God allowed them to go to a city of refuge. And then when the high priest died, which is pretty interesting, because uh, the high priest death atoned for them, and that's symb symbolic of what the Messiah did. But anyway, 
uh, when the high priest died, the person was allowed to come back to the uh, to the city that they originally lived in. Also, set forth are many of the rules of war. So there are rules of war. God does uh, it says uh, that He executes war uh, justice. Uh, uh, let me turn it. That's Chris. I think it's in Revelation chapter nineteen. But many people don't understand war can be uh, expressing justice. Yeah. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Revelation 19, verse 11. This is in the Revised Standard um, the revised standard uh, Version of the Bible. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, which is the theme of this uh, program, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Okay, so war can be righteous. War is not always wicked. So, uh, right back, back in this description of the Torah reading, also set forth for many of the rules of war, the exemption from battle for one who has just made a home, planted a vineyard, married, or is afraid and soft-hearted. In other words, just some men don't have it in them just to, to wipe out men, and God understands that. So he doesn't require for you to be involved in the war. The requirement to offer terms of peace before attack a city. The prohibition against wanton destruction of something of value. And this is something that all of our military throughout the world need to pay attention to uh, because many times, it's like more often than not, they just destroy. Uh, you know, when, when there's a bomb detonated somewhere, there's collateral damage, you know, and God, he's against collateral damage. Uh, it should not, we should be very careful of wanton destruction of anything, especially human beings, you know, and they call it collateral damage, you know. Uh, exemplified by the law that forbids to cut down a fruit tree when laying siege. You're not even supposed to cut down a fruit tree. Uh, in this context, the Torah makes a famous statement, for man is a tree of the field. So that, that's a very important scripture there. And then the Parsha concludes with the law of Eglah Arafah, the special procedure to be followed when a person is killed by an unknown murderer and his body is found in, in a field, which underscores, the resp or underscores means to emphasize the responsibility of the community and its leaders, not only for what they do, but also for what they might have prevented from being done. So what you need to get from this, God has set up judges and inspired other countries to have judges. In China, they have judges. They have a court. They have a court uh, in, in Japan. They have it worldwide. So God has put it in, in us all to have a sense of doing right. And there is authority to be followed. You can't escape it. Even if you're a bum, no matter where you're at, there's authority that you must follow. There's there's right and there's wrong. And the problem with society today is that we don't want to do what God says is right. And we don't want and we don't we try to shirk or try to run away from responsibility to do what you need to do. I learned my lesson the hard way not to do that. Uh, there's always, as I tell my son, I'll tell you, there's only one being in the universe that's not told what to do. That's God the Father. Everyone else, including Jesus or Yeshua, is told what to do. So we got to get used to that. And, and many of us are. I mean, we're used to it. We go to our jobs, right? 
we get told what to do, right? We know if we don't do certain things, then what? We get punished, right? Uh, rent. You have to pay the rent a certain time. If you don't pay it a certain time, then you have to pay the penalty, right? You know, those are rules and regulations that we all uh, understand, and you lay on your mortgage payment as a penalty for that, etc. We We know that. It was just that we have a tendency to not want to do what we're supposed to do. And that's not right. All right, let's go up to the prophet, the, the prophet section here. And then I'm going to go over to some other scriptures. So let's go over to the Hattor of the prophet or section of the Torah readings. And I'm going to use um, Chabad's, uh, that's C-H-A-B-A-D.org uh, summary of this. That's Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12, to Isaiah 52, verse 12. So Isaiah 51, verse 12, to Isaiah 52, verse 12. This week's Hattor is the fourth of a series of seven Hattor of Consolation. Hattor of Consolation. These seven Hattor commence or begin on the Shabbat following Chishabath and continue with Rosh Hashanah. The Hattors are of the past two weeks open with Israel's complaint that they have been abandoned by God. Israel is not content with consolations offered by the prophets. Instead, they demand that God alone comfort them. In response, this week's Haftorah begins with God's response, I indeed, I will comfort you. After briefly reprimanding Israel for forgetting their creator for fear of human and finite oppressors, the prophet describes the suffering and tribulations which Israel has endured. However, the time has arrived for the suffering to end. The time has come for Israel's oppressors to drink the cup of suffering which they had hereto, though, uh, forced Israel to drink. Awaken, awaken, put on your strength, O Zion, put on the, which is referring to Jerusalem, put on the garments of your beauty, Jerusalem, the holy city. For no longer shall the uncircumcised or the unclean continue to enter you. Shake yourselves from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Free yourself of the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion that's referring to the modern the modern city of Israel today, or Jerusalem. Isaiah extols the beauty of the messenger who will announce the good tidings of redemption. Burst out in song. Sing together, O ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has consoled his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, or Jerusalem. The Hattorah ends by highlighting the difference between the Egyptian exodus when the Israelites hurried out of their exile and bondage, and the future redemption. For not with haste shall you go forth, and not in a flurry of flight shall you go, for the Lord goes before you, and your rear guard is the God of Israel. So that that is the uh, summary of the Torah section. Now, let's get back into focusing more on what righteousness is and what we need to do to, to make sure that we're righteous. First of all, let's understand that all righteous people, with the exception of Yeshua, have sinned. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. And continue to sin, but they don't sin. Let's put it this way. A, right, a truly righteous person, as I'm going to prove to you, doesn't sin on a consistent basis. They occasionally sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, remember, there's no one on earth so righteous as to do good only and never make a mistake. Because that's, that's a very good uh, translation there. So uh, the conversations I've had with people, you know, when, when 
I say I'm righteous or someone else says they're righteous, they tend to think, oh, this person thinks they're perfect. No, uh, that's not what I mean and that's not what they mean or that's not what they should mean. Uh, in verse 20, kind of explains it. Remember, there's no one on earth so righteous as to do good only and never make a mistake. All right, there's a scripture that says, um, all has come short of the glory of God. All right, so let's get that straight. I want to get that premise. Uh, when I when God talks about a righteous man, he's not talking about a perfect man. I think people eisegesis that without knowing, I guess, and, and they assume, all oh, this person thinks they're perfect. That's not what the person's saying. And that's what not what a righteous person is. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 37, verse 16. We all better get righteous. God wants us all to be righteous. That's the goal. But let's hopefully define this so you understand what being righteous is. It doesn't mean being perfect. It means striving toward being perfect. Uh, right here, and a lot of people, they equate righteousness with making a lot of money. And, and that, that's, <laughs> that has nothing to do with being righteous. has nothing to do with how much money you're making. Uh, Proverbs 37, verse 16, it says, Better is the little that the righteous have than the overabundant wealth of the wicked. This is an interesting dichotomy here. Dichotomy, two opposite views. Uh, it says, it's implying here that the righteous have little possessions. All right, And then it, it compares it with the overabundant wealth of the wicked. This is the reason why Yeshua stated in the famous uh, scripture in Matthew chapter 19, um, when he, the, the the rich man stated that he kept all the commandments, and then he, then Yeshua said, "Well, you're lacking in one thing." He said, "What is that?" Well, give all your 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 great possessions to the poor, and follow me. He didn't want to do that. And then he stated, "Well, for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." Why? Well, this kind of explains it here. Uh, the overabundant wealth of the wicked. That ruler had an overabundance of wealth. And, and, and Christ wanted him to give up his overabundance, and he didn't want to do that. But that makes you wicked when, and there's a parable in Luke chapter 12, about the rich fool. He had overabundant wealth, and it made him wicked because he didn't want to share it. Most righteous people on this earth, folks, don't have a lot of possessions. That's what the Bible teaches. So if you're expecting a righteous person to have everything okay and have great riches and so forth, that's not the case. And people say, well, Abraham is rich. and Yeah, yeah. But did he promise every righteous man to be rich like Abraham? Show that to me. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. And Yeshua wasn't as rich as Abraham that he was made poor so so that through his poverty we may be made rich and it's not talking about financially rich okay Proverbs 15 verse 16 Proverbs 15 verse 16 
Proverbs 15, verse 16. It says, Better a little with fear of the Lord. And what's the fear of the Lord? You can jot this down. Proverbs 8, verse 13 is to hate evil. So it's better a little with the fear of the Lord than a great treasure with turmoil. So same concept. Maybe different wording, but it gives you a little more meaning to what God is trying to get across here. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better a little with righteousness than great prophets without justice. Okay, this is God's words here. So I just hope you understand that being righteous does not mean that you're rich. <laughs> Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Oh, you don't have money issues. Luke 12, verse 15. This is a direct quote from Yeshua in red letters in the King James Version or in other Bibles that has what he said in, in red. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Watch and guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. And then he talks about the parable, one of my favorite, of the rich fool. Okay, so... Uh, we don't we don't want to go there. We don't want to be a rich fool and trying to figure out what should we do with all our extra money or possessions. Oh, I'll go ahead and big, uh, create bigger bars or um, bigger bank accounts or open up several other accounts instead of giving that money to the poor. You know, you got to do right in that situation, and most people, unfortunately, don't. They think about themselves and they consume it upon their own lust. They're, they're riches, and that's not right. And that's another scripture I wanted to quote here that I should have wrote down. Did I write it down? I think I remember it, though. I think it's First Timothy chapter 6. Verse 6, I think. Yeah, I'm going to read this here. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And most people just don't get this, this following statement, but I just hope that you, you just pray to God that you do. <laughs> Seriously. Because it's very important to understand, especially now in these hard times that we're living in here. It says, actually, and then verse 6, First Timothy 6, verse 6, in the Common English Bible Version, actually... Godliness is a great source of profit when it is combined with being happy with what you already have. Okay? So we should be happy with what we already have. And it's counted onto being a great source of profit when you do that. And then in verse 7 says, We didn't bring anything into the world, and so we can't take anything out of it. We'll be happy with food and clothing. 
But people who are trying to get rich fall into temptation. They are trapped by many stupid and harmful passions that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Money is not the goal. The goal for your life is to serve other people. And then through that, the goal is eternal life. Money should not be your goal. And if money is all you think about, if money is what gets you to, to, to really go, then you're not going to be very happy. You're not going to be very happy. That's what it indicates here. So I, I just hope that you, you understand that and, and, and you apply that and uh, don't focus so much on money. And then the, and the English Standard Bible version says that now there is great, in verse 6 of First Timothy 6, verse 6, now there is great gain and godliness with contentment. And we have to be content, especially in this economy right now and the way it is. Uh, we should be content at all times, but especially in this economy and the way it is. It's horrible. And we have to be content with what we have. And and I just wanted to, to point out again what, what peace is, what the Bible indicates what peace is and what it's linked with. Uh, let's, let's turn to Psalm 119. Verse 165. And then we're going to get into more detail about righteousness. Oh, I love this. This is a better translation here. It's a lot clearer. Psalm 119, 165 out of the Common English Bible Version. It says, The people who love your instruction enjoy peace. And lots of it. There's no stumbling for them. And then in verse 166, Lord, I wait for your saving help. I do what you've commanded. I keep your laws, and I love them so much. And I keep your precepts and your laws because all my ways are seen by you. So this is David writing this, uh, King David. And Psalm 165, again, uh, Psalm 119, verse 165, again, the people who love instruction enjoy peace and lots of it what's peace again peace is knowing that and having all your needs taken care of you you have your health uh, you are eating you have clothes you have shelter those are your needs that's what brings peace and most people in the world don't have peace not everyone in the world has peace peace of mind knowing all your needs are taken care of knowing who the creator is understanding his will not having any doubts about your life you know why mankind is the way it is and, and how mankind will end up most people can't say that they have that kind of peace Okay, so let's get into righteousness here in the last 25 minutes here of this Bible study.
Let's turn to James chapter 2, verse 23. James chapter 2, verse So this is in the context here, if you, you want to read this above and below, that trust or faith must have works. You have a lot of Christian denominations and organizations claiming that all you need to do is believe God and that's it. You don't have to do anything else. But uh, this this chapter, if you read the whole chapter, is in, in condemnation of that sentiment or feeling. Uh, in James chapter 2, verse uh, 23, says, So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham or Abraham believed God, and God regarded him as righteous. What is more, Abraham was called God's friend. And why was he? Let's turn, turn to verse 21. What about Abraham, our father? Wasn't he shown to be righteous? And how was he shown righteous? Through his actions, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. See, his faith was at work along with his actions. In fact, his faith was made complete by his faithful actions. So you can say you believe, you can believe, you can believe, but God wants to see actions to 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 complete your belief or to prove to him that you do believe him. And that's what Abraham did. And he did it so well that he was considered God's friend. And if we're children of Abraham, we want to also be considered God's friend. And we have to, to emulate and copy what he did, Abraham. That's why he's called the father, the earthly father of righteousness. Okay. And then, um, of course, for women, you have the example of Sarah. If you want to be a daughter of Sarah, do what Sarah did. And there's a scripture that stated that she obeyed her husband. So, uh, James chapter 3, verse 18. This is an interesting verse. It says, those who make peace or contribute to peace, plant or sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. That's a very interesting scripture because it's showing you that you know being peaceful, which has something to do with loving the instruction of God or the Torah, automatically plants righteousness within you. And that's that's very important to understand. Let me see what how the English Standard Bible version translates this. James chapter three, verse eighteen. Yeah, it says a harvest a harvest of righteousness, which is a pretty good translation too, is sown or planted in peace by those who make peace. Okay, so when you're making peace, when you are 
loving the instruction of the Torah. And by doing that, God promises to provide your needs. What you're doing is planting a foundation of righteousness to continue to grow and grow and grow. Now, what is righteousness again? Psalm 119, verse 172, the the Bible definition of righteousness is keeping the Torah of the commandments of God. Okay, in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Whoa, what happened here? First Peter uh, Okay. It says he carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness. So he died on see this is what people don't understand. <laughs> He's sure what he did. He didn't die for us to uh, encourage us not to do anything. Okay? He died on the cross so that to encourage us to live righteously. This is what this verse says here. He says, he carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, live in commandment keeping. That's what righteousness means. Having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds you were healed. What 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 was it that we were healed from? We had one church that just taught we were just physically healed. Well, it's talking about all kinds of healing, whether it's physical or spiritual. We were healed so that we can start living by righteousness. So that we can know the way to righteousness. Verse twenty five Through you thought I me mean, though you were like straying sheep. You have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your lives. And how have you returned? By living righteously. We we have to learn how to live righteously. That's why Yeshua died on the cross. Not for us to continue to live in sin. And most of the Christian churches are in error when they teach that. Grace, 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 grace. No. We have his favor. But we won't have his favor, folks, if we don't live by righteousness. I guarantee you that. You got to stop pretending and then start obeying. Okay. First Peter three verse Yeah, man, this is uh, scripture too. I quoted earlier about, and some women may listen to me. Got angry when I said you must be your husband. Well, uh, in First Peter three verse four, it states this. First Peter three verse six. Now, this is on your own Bible, so you women that don't agree with this, uh, you need to argue with God about this because this is in the Bible, and this is in the New Testament for those who think the Old Testament is toilet paper. First Peter chapter three verse six. For example, Sarah accepted Abraham's authority 
when she called him master. It's right there. You'll become her children when you do good and don't respond to threats with fear. So, and then God wants this for women, verse 5, for it was in this way that the holy women who trusted in God used to make themselves beautiful, accepting the authority of their own husbands. You know, these, these scriptures are there for any woman to see. And if you understand English, is is it's pretty plain what is indicating here. And when women don't obey their husbands, they open up a can a can of worms. Okay, it's, it's, it's just plain and simple as that. And, you know, women are out here and work. You know, you, you've got to separate your professional career from your family career. All right, when you come home, your husband deserves just as much respect as you give your boss, if not more, on your job. He really does. Now, I understand that the husband's laying around, not doing nothing, just being a bum. But if you have a husband that's doing the best that he can, he's having problems finding a job, or uh, he has his own business and he's struggling. I understand that. I've got my own business and I'm struggling. It's tough out there right now. The economy is messed up. We did not gain one job in August. Not one. And, and the unemployment rate for the most probably oppressed type of race in this country for blacks has not never been as high as it has been now in 27 years. These are real bad times. And you women that are blessed enough to have a decent job, and if you got husbands that are struggling and doing the best that they can, educating themselves, uh, showing you that they're trying to better themselves and doing all they can to help themselves, you shouldn't persecute them. You should love them and encourage them and pray to the Father that your husband can and can get something on a daily basis. And above all that, you need to obey your husband. You can't expect God to answer your prayers if you don't obey your husband. Second Peter chapter okay, first Peter chapter three. I wanted to read this in a different version. Yeah, it says right here, okay, verse five. First uh, Peter 3, verse 5, the English Standard Version of the Bible. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay, so I just wanted to get that word obey in there. <laughs> so it, it, it's, that's what God wants a woman to do. Just like it's so easy for women to obey their well, I guess it may not be easy for some women <laughs> not to even obey their own bosses at work. But but I would say, based on my experience and what I've observed in the corporate world, it's a lot easier for women to obey their bosses than it is for them to obey their own husbands. And that, that, that's not right. That's not right. That's sin. And, and any woman that does it, they need to repent of that. All right, so here's the, the scripture that I really wanted to focus on here. First John chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. This really, really puts being righteous in perspective here. 
First John chapter three, verses seven to ten in the um common English Bible version. It says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you or tricks you. The person who practices righteousness is righteous. So that's your definition of a righteous person. There's there's another scripture that I, I may quote toward the end of this in Ezekiel eighteen that gives you a description of what a righteous person is. But it says the person who practices righteousness is righteous. And what is righteousness? It's keeping the commandments, right? So a person who practices, practices means that you do this on a consistent basis. Just like when you do a specific task on your job, you're doing that task on a consistent basis. Well, this is what this is talking about. The person who practices righteousness, keeps Torah, keeps the doctrines of God to the base of his or her ability, is righteous. In the same way that Jesus is righteous. Now, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> now, we know we're not going to be perfect like Jesus, but Jesus kept Torah and continues to keep Torah now. So when we keep Torah, we are practicing righteousness in the same way that Yeshua practices righteousness. Verse 8, the person who practices sin belongs to the devil. That's a person, of course, not, a, that, not who occasionally sins, but sins on a consistent basis. Over and over and over and over again, so much so that they're just totally wicked. That person, it says right here in verse 8, the person who practices sin belongs to the devil because the devil has been sinning since the beginning. And that's interesting. He has sinned since the beginning. <laughs> and that's a pretty interesting Bible study too. And I may do that in the future. But uh, it says that the devil has sinned from the beginning, the beginning of the world. Yeah, it's a very interesting Bible study. But anyway, and he says, God's Son appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the devil has works. So let's use this dichotomy and, and, and be logical here. If the devil has works, don't you think God has works? And if the devil's children, which we're going to get into in a minute, if you are a child of someone, more than likely you're going to do the works of your father or mother, right? The children of the devil do the works of the devil. The children of God do the works of God. That's the dichotomy that you need to, to understand, as we're going to get into here. So God's Son appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9. Those born from God don't practice sin. They don't practice sin. It's not something that's on their minds all the time. Okay? They fight it. They fight against practicing sin. Because God's DNA, and that's an excellent translation, God's DNA remains in them. They can't sin because they are born of God. Meaning that the, the, the DNA that's in them can't sin. It doesn't say that the righteous person doesn't sin, but the DNA that's in them does not is incapable of sin because God can't sin. And as you continue to practice sin, you're going to form the habit of not sinning as much to the point where you may almost be perfect. Because the Bible says in Matthew 5, verse 48, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How are you going to be able to do that? Well, through the Holy Spirit, God plants his DNA in you. And that DNA cannot sin. It's impossible for that DNA to sin. And as you continue to obey, he gives you more of the Holy Spirit, which empowers that DNA 
And as you reach your spiritual maturity, you it's possible to be almost perfect, where you, you're hardly ever cynic. And that's what this is talking about here. When it says they can't sin because they are born of God. And eventually, as a, a minister taught, when you are truly born of God, when, when you are resurrected, you won't ever sin because you'll be totally perfect. You will be consist of spirit. So the DNA construction will be complete and you will never sin. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 10, this is how God's children and the devil's children are apparent. The, the dichotomy again. Everyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not from God. If if keeping God's law is not the most important thing to you, God says you, 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 you're not of God. So everyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not from God, including the person who doesn't have a brother or sister. I mean, I'm sorry, including the person who doesn't love a brother and sister. He's talking about a brother and sister uh, uh, in the assembly and also your fellow human being because we're supposed to love everyone. Verse 11, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Love each other. Verse 12, don't behave like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he kill him? He killed him because his own works were evil, but the works of his brother were righteous. That's why he killed him. He was jealous, but not righteously jealous. The kind of righteous jealousy should provoke you to do right. He was provoked to do wicked. And that's unfortunate. You shouldn't, when you see someone doing something that you know you should do, you shouldn't get angry at them. How dare you do that? It should provoke you to do what you need to do. So I hope I've explained to you justice and, and righteousness and doing the right thing. It's very important that we practice that. In James, I have a little time here. In James chapter 1, it states the following. And I'm kind of curious to see how this is read in the complete, I mean the uh, Common English Bible version here. It says, true devotion, or true religion, James 1, verse 27, the kind that is pure and faultless before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their difficulties and to keep the world from contaminating us. That's a very good uh, translation. That is pure religion, a, a true devotion to God, folks. And what is the Bible's definition of a righteous person? Let's turn to Ezekiel. I still have time here. Ezekiel, chapter 18. And let's find out. Uh, let's see. find this here. I know it's in Ezekiel somewhere here. Okay. In verse 14 of Ezekiel, chapter 18, in the Common English Bible Version, but suppose he has a child who sees all the sins that his father committed. He becomes alarmed and doesn't do them. 
So that means that um, it's possible to have a wicked father, and you see what your wicked father has done, and you don't do the same things that your wicked father has done. Okay. And it says, but suppose he has a child who sees all the sins that his father committed. He becomes alarmed and doesn't do them. He doesn't eat on the mountains or pay attention to the idols of the house of Israel. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife, in other words, commit adultery. He, uh, he doesn't cheat anyone, either by seizing collateral for loans or committing robbery. And see, that's unfortunate. Uh, banks today, they, they give loans to people, and they want to make sure you have something, you got a house or something, so if you default on that loan, do no fault of your own hard times like me, breaking wrists or whatever, uh, they'll go ahead and take it. Or you're doing it, you lose your job, or they'll still take your possessions. It's not that you're not wanting to pay back. It's just that things happen. As the Bible says, time and chance happens to all where you're not able to pay it, and they go ahead and take it. That's wicked to God. That You're not being righteous doing that. Uh, it says uh, he doesn't cheat anyone either by seizing collateral for loans or committing a robbery. He gives his food to the hungry and clothes to the naked. He refrains from oppressing the poor by taking neither interest nor profit. And here we go with uh, the banks that we have in this country. They charge interest. Credit cards charge interest. That's a sin. That would I would love to be able to have a credit card where there's no interest charge. <laughs> that would really help a lot of people, wouldn't it? But anyway, but the purpose of the credit card industry is to cause people to get into debt and to just take advantage of it and to make money off of, of, of their purchases, unfortunately. He observes my case laws and fulfills my regulations. He won't die because of his father's guilt. He will surely live. So that's the definition of a righteous person. Someone who keeps a tour, someone who cares about the poor, someone who will give money and not expect it back if the person can't pay it back. A person will not charge interest on whenever they give someone a loan. They won't take your collateral or take your possessions or as collateral for it. And you know, he says he doesn't eat on the mountains or pay attention to idol idols of Israel. In other words, they're not in idolatrous practices. They pay attention to the the uh the kosher laws or the uh proper laws of um foods. That's listening to Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14. They do all of that. That's considered a righteous person in God's eyes. Someone who keeps the Torah, cares about people. That's a righteous person. So, um, I hope that you understand the importance of justice and righteousness and and the opening, the... Uh, Let's read this uh, in the remaining two minutes I have left. The opener of my program that's in audio form, but it really sums up what righteousness should be for everybody. Uh, Psalm chapter 82. And we're not doing this, and that's the reason why we're having difficulties here. Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his stand in the divine council. He gives judgment among the gods, O Elohim, O mighty ones. Verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly? By granting favor to the wicked. Selah means think about that. Give justice to the lowly and the orphan. Maintain the right of the poor and the destitute. Rescue the lowly and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. And it's saying for the, the populace of mankind, verse 5, they don't know, they don't understand, 
And because of that, they wander around in dark. And because of that, all the earth's foundations shake. That's the overall problem of humanity today, folks. We can't act like Cain and say, um, am I my brother's keeper? We are all our brother's keeper or protector. With that, may God bless and keep you, and God willing, I'll be available for you next week. And let's pray for those who are in the path of uh, Tropical Storm Lee. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.